A Biblical Look at Law, Civics, and Government. My name is Eric Pupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, we are continuing with our series on the demonic, idolatry, and ancient pagan gods. If you've been uh, following along with this series, uh, I first took a look at the concept of demons, what the Bible has to say about demons, who they are, what they do, how they influence people, and how they are associated with idols and idol worship. Then we took a look at the ancient worship of Baal uh, and what the Israelites did when they engaged in that kind of idolatry, who Baal was, what the mythology behind Baal was, and what it means for today, how it applies for today. And a quick summary of that, Baal was a a god about power uh, and mystery and control um, of nature and of people. And so what I want to do is look at another ancient goddess that is associated with Baal a lot in the Old Testament. And it's one of the big three. I mentioned them before, but the big three uh, that Israel struggled against were Baal, Asherah, and Moloch. And so today we're going to look at Asherah or Ishtar. So there's a lot of different names for the same goddess. So just beginning with the word Asherah or Asherim. This is similar to the word Baal or Baalim. Um, Asherah just means goddess. And Asherim means goddesses. Uh, And when you look at the word Ishtar, that's the Assyrian word for goddess. That's why Asherah and Ishtar are referring to the same goddess, even though uh, they're different words. It all depends on what culture you're referring to, what language you're referring to. Now, the, the word Asher has its origins in the word happy or happiness. And let me give, give you an example of that. In Genesis chapter 30, verses, uh, let's see here, 10 through 13. If you recall that story, we have uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And Leah doesn't have any more children. So she wants her servant Zilpah to become Jacob's wife. I guess that might be his fourth wife. So what happens is Leah's servant bears Jacob a son. And she says in verse 11, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. But then in verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bears a second son for Jacob. And here's what is said in verse 13. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. So the word Asher is connected to the word happy, to be happy, happiness. Now, when we go to the word Asherim or Asherah or Ashtaroth, it's often used interchangeably to refer to the goddess herself or the sacred tree that was used in her worship. Uh, They are the Asherah poles, okay, and they represent the goddess. Uh, Originally, they were probably just dead tree stumps that were decorated um, and they were placed in a grove and they eventually become ornate carved wooden images very similar to what you might look at as a totem pole if you've seen any native american totem poles or other things like that um, that wooden pole 
that's ornate and decorated and carved would have been an Asherah pole eventually uh, in the ancient Near East. Now, even though there were many Asherah poles and, and they're referred to as the Asherim um, in the Old Testament, there is a universal or a common mythology behind Asherah. And she's known as the Queen of Heaven or the Lady of the Sea. Now, one thing of note regarding Asherah is that she is focused on unrestrained sexuality, unmarried, sensuous love, uh, the breaking of boundaries, and the blurring of distinctions. Now, why? Now, why is that? Well, and by the way, this is a little bit of a warning for those listening that have little children nearby. I'm going to be discussing some things that are mature. So please keep that in mind as we move on. So Asherah is understood to be an androgynous goddess. So she typically presents herself as female, but identifies as both or as neither. She is associated with Venus, the planet Venus, and the moon, which displays two sides of her. Okay, uh, one side that is very sensual and erotic, and another side that is very violent, full of vengeance. Now, later versions of Asherah divide her into uh, two or more goddesses. So you'll see this with the Greeks, they have Artemis and Aphrodite. With the Romans, they have Venus and Diana. And with the Norse, they have Freya and Frigg. Okay, so, but, but Asherah at this point is, is one, although there is some evidence to suggest that uh, the Canaanites worshipped Asherah and Anath, or Anath, uh, depends how you pronounce that name, Anath or Anath is part of the epic of Baal, the Baal cycle, uh, so is Asherah, she's mentioned there too, and we'll get to that. So the epic of Baal, mentioned it in our episode on Baal written around 1400 BC, when Baal, in his quest for power, overthrows the other gods, Yam and Nahar, he asks for Asherah's help to build a house for him. And she's considered to be the mother of 70 gods, and so she's willing to help Baal gain power and to um, establish himself, establish his power. Now, there are other stories that refer to Asherah. One of them is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and that is a Sumerian epic Written around 2000 BC, uh, Gilgamesh is kind of like the hero Hercules. He's a demigod. He's not fully god. But Ishtar, or Inanna, so Inanna is another name for this goddess. Ishtar, Inanna, Asherah. Um, she asks him to marry her. She wants to be with Gilgamesh. But he refuses. Uh, because, And he references her treatment of her other lovers. One of whom is named Tammuz, and we'll get to Tammuz later. He's a god, a shepherd god, and whom she had punished. But anyways, Gilgamesh points out that she destroys or divorces her lovers at will, so she's quite unreliable and not a good lover. Ishtar is enraged and decides to get revenge upon Gilgamesh and uses the Bowl of Heaven. This was referenced in the Epic of Baal, but the Bowl of Heaven... Um, and she's going to destroy the world with her rage and cause the dead to rise and devour the living, kind of like a zombie apocalypse, if you will. So, so she asks for the bull of heaven. She gets it. She sends it to go kill Gilgamesh. But instead, Gilgamesh kills the bull. 
he successfully destroys the bull of heaven. And Ishtar then mourns over the death of the bull. And then we go to another document called the Descent of Inanna, another Sumerian document. And here, Inanna, or Ishtar, she descends to the underworld. And some documents say that she's trying to find her lover. Um, and that might be a reference to Tammuz, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Others say that she's going to rescue the bull of heaven. And there might be a connection to that, the bull of heaven, Tammuz, because Tammuz is a shepherd god. And you'll see this same concept with Anath and Baal, where Anath mourns for Baal. Uh, and Baal is also associated with bulls and the bull calf. So that's why you get a lot of these same parallels over different cultures. Anyways, when she goes, when Asherah goes to the underworld, the god of the underworld strips her naked, kills her, and hangs her on the wall. So then Anana's assistant mourns for her death and reports to the world that she's died. She has died, and she asks for help. So then this assistant gets help to rescue Inanna. And the help that she receives, or that this assistant receives, we don't really know the gender of this assistant, uh, is in the form of two creatures, one named the Kurgara and one named the Galatur. And they are neither male nor female. And these creatures go to the underworld, they sprinkle uh, the water and food of life upon Inanna, and they bring her back. So now she tries to get back. She tries to come out of the underworld and get back to the regular world. But the gods of the underworld demand payment. Someone must take her place for her. And they send these demons, called the Gala, with her to exact payment. Now, when she arrives back to the normal world, she tells the demons to take her husband to Muz. So this is what is was referred to earlier when, when Gilgamesh talks about how she treated her husband Tammuz. Well, this is what happens. Because she died, uh, Tammuz did not mourn her death sufficiently. Okay, and so she's angry at Tammuz for not mourning her, her, her death. And so she tells the demons to take him and kill him. So the demons drag Tammuz to the underworld. But Inanna regrets her decision and also mourns his death. So we have this cycle of uh, anger and eroticism and then extreme mourning and sadness and sorrow. And this cycle just continues, right? Uh, she, she finds a way to get Tammuz back. So she makes a deal that uh, Tammuz will stay in the underworld for six months, but then be with her for six months. And this is where we get the cycle of the seasons. So where Tammuz is gone is winter or the not the growing season, the dry season, um, the season of, of death and infertility, okay? Um, that's when Tammuz is gone. And then when he comes back, that is the rainy season, the, the harvest season, things like that. Um, and since in the ancient world they used a lunar calendar, uh, the month of Tammuz, and it's actually called Tammuz, that's the name of the month, it's typically around the month of June. And we'll We'll see how that's a factor later. And then let's take a look at some other documents. Well, other doc, and there's many for Inanna, uh, but some of them are hymns to Inanna, um, and others just more narrative and describing what uh, she's doing. But I'm just going to read a few 
of the descriptions of Inanna, I mentioned that she's androgynous, um, but she, she's a little bit more than that. So let me read a couple here. This, these are from the hymns to Inanna. Quote, When her wrath makes people tremble, the burning sensation and the distress she causes are like a demon ensnaring a man. Quote, Inanna sits on harnessed lions. She cuts to pieces him who shows no respect. The mistress is a great bull trusting in its strength. No one dare turn against her. Quote, Whoever eats Inanna's food and milk of death will not last. Gall will give a burning pain to those she gives it to eat. In her joyful heart, she performs the song of death on the plain. She performs the song of her heart. She washes their weapons with blood and gore. Axes smash heads. Spears penetrate. And maces are covered in blood. Their evil mouths of the warriors, on their first offering, she pours blood, filling them with blood. Now that's similar, by the way, to the Epic of Baal in reference to Anath, because Anath also goes on a streak of vengeance uh, for the world not mourning um, Baal's death enough. So you see, you see these parallels going on here. The, the characters sometimes change, uh, the names sometimes change, but the themes are all the same. Now, here are some quotes that refer to how she affects the relationship between man and woman. Uh, she says, quote, I am a woman, I am a man. When I sit in the alehouse, I am a woman, and I am an exuberant young man. When I present at a place of quarreling, I am a woman, a perfect figure. When I sit by the gate of the tavern, I am a prostitute, the friend of a man, the girlfriend of a woman. Quote, Inanna was entrusted by Enlil and Ninlil, these are other gods, with the capacity to gladden the heart of those who revere her, to turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man, to change one into the other, to make young women dress as young men on their right side, to make young men dress as young women on their left side, to put spindles into the hands of men, and to give weapons to the women, to see that women amuse themselves by using children's language, to see that children amuse themselves by using women's language. And then again, here's another one. Quote, to turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. To interchange the brute and the strong and the weak and the powerless is yours, Inanna. To interchange the heights and valleys and the plains is yours, Inanna. And another, quote, to grind away from men manliness, to take away their swords, bows, arrows, daggers, and bring them into the land then put into their hand the distaff and mirror of a woman and clothe them as women. So those are several different hymns or descriptions of Inanna that clearly refer to her as someone who overturns established boundaries, uh, particularly the boundaries between men and women, the distinctiveness between them biologically and also in their function, what they're, what they're designed to do. And she's all about blurring lines, crossing boundaries, in overturning established norms and practices. Uh, there's a couple other ancient documents that refer to her. Uh, this is one that is from the Akkadian uh, culture. And here's what it says. It says, As for Uruk, the dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, the city of cult prostitutes, courtesans, and temple prostitutes, whom Ishtar kept from having husbands and put under their own authority, whose masculinity... Inanna changed into femininity to induce awe in the people, as well as the bearers of swords and bearers of razors, knives, and flints, who, to make Inanna joyful, continually broke 
taboos. So again, there um, she changes the masculine into the feminine, and that's a way of demonstrating her power and inducing awe into the people, breaking the taboos. And then here we go. This is another hymn, a Sumerian hymn uh, called Hymn to Hendersaga. It's a description of seven spirits or demons. And here's what it says, quote, These seven, they are neither female divinities nor male divinities. They bind men. They bind the arms of women. They set the weapon at the side for women. So again, you have this idea of taking men, taking away their masculinity, taking weapons away from them, disarming them, and then giving weapons to women and and kind of masculinizing women. And that's where you get uh, the famous mythologies of like the Amazonian women uh, who were warrior women, or more popularly known, the Valkyrie of Norse mythology. Uh, again, warrior, a vicious warrior women uh, there, who, who can also be very erotic at the same time. And you get that with the goddesses of Aphrodite and Artemis, okay, and Venus and Diana as well. Artemis is typically viewed as goddess of the hunt or goddess of war. And that's like the one side, and Aphrodite, the goddess of eroticism and love, the other side. But here is a description by a Greek historian named Macrobius around 400 AD. Here's what he says, quote, Moreover, there is in Cyprus a bearded statue of the goddess with female clothing, but with male attributes, so that it would seem that the deity is both male and female. Aristophanes also calls her Aphroditus. Philochorus, too, says that Venus is the moon and that men offer sacrifice to the moon dressed as women and women dressed as men because the moon is thought to be both male and female. And that is a description of a famous festival called Saturnalia. Saturnalia is a Roman festival where there's a celebration of role reversals. Everything is reversed during this Saturnalia celebration. Now, there's other versions of Asherah, and I mentioned that there's parallel with Anath and Baal, just like there is with Asherah and Tammuz, okay? Similar idea of these other gods uh, who are associated with bulls or the bull calf dying, and Asherah or Anath trying to get them back and being very vengeful uh, towards those who didn't mourn them sufficiently, right? Uh, you have other versions of this. Um, Isis uh, is an easy Egyptian version of Inanna or Ishtar. I mentioned Venus. I mentioned Aphrodite. Uh, interestingly, this, this is a, another hint at the androgyny. The word hermaphrodite, okay, which refers to someone who's both genders or neither, is a reference to a version of Aphrodite known as Herma of Aphroditus. Herma of Aphrodite is a version of Aphrodite that is androgynous. Um, so again, that's where we get the word her hermaphrodite from. Let's take a look now at the worship of Asherah in the Old Testament. I mentioned before it was the carved wooden image or totem pole. Okay. Now, this was typically set up on the high places, again, where heaven and earth meet. And it's also because worship of Asherah was associated with worship of Baal, because they go together for the most part, in these stories. So every high place would have a Asherah pole 
It would also be in every grove or, or a green tree, the gardens, right? Because Tammuz and Baal are, are linked and they overlap because Baal and Tammuz both die and return. And Asherah and Anath both mourn for their loss. So it's a depiction of the seasonal cycles. And that's why in the Old Testament you'll see Baal and Asherah together uh, a lot of the time. Uh, let me just give an example of that. In the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 25, we have the situation of Gideon, right? So here's what it says in verse 25. This is when the Lord speaks to Gideon. He says, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asher that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So essentially... Yeah, cut down the Asherah pole and use it as fire. Use it as, as fuel for the fire. But you see Asherah and Baal are worshipped together there in, in the book of Judges. Um, we also have First uh, Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Uh, here is what uh, Elijah says to Ahab. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So there's a reference to, again, the prophets of Baal and Asherah together, and they all ate at Jezebel's table. Now, just for interesting note here, Jezebel was the daughter of King Ethbaal, and Ethbaal means, quote, with Baal. So his name means to be with Baal. And her name, Jezebel, seems to mean, where is Baal? And that is the same uh, question that that the worshippers of Baal would 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 give, and Anath would give when she mourned his death. Where is Baal? Baal is dead. Where is Baal? Uh, and it's probably a reference to Baal having uh, died and needs to be brought back to life. And I'll just give one more reference in the Old Testament to the Asherah tree, and that's Deuteronomy sixteen twenty one. It says, "You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah." beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. So again, this, this totem pole, this pillar, this wooden um, Asherah uh, is not to be associated with, uh, with God, with the worship of God. So what does worship look like? Well, it involved a lot of sexual debauchery called prostitution, for example. The priests and the kings would play the role of the god, and the priestesses and the queens would play the role of the goddess, and they would engage in public ritual sex. Um, this idea that you are embodying the essence of the gods, and you are assimilating the, the deity into yourself, and this was done to ensure divine blessing and fertility. Uh, an example of this would have been the weeping for Tammuz, or for Baal. And there's a reference to this in Ezekiel chapter 18. This is the only part of the Bible that references Tammuz. And this is when Ezekiel is brought uh, in, his, in the vision by the angel, is brought to the temple, and the angel points out all of the evil that's taking place there. Here's what it says in verse uh, 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. 
Okay, so why is that an abomination? Well, it's because the weeping for Tammuz, which typically took place during the month of Tammuz, the month of June, involved not just mourning, but also ritual sex practices uh, outside of marriage, uh, a time of heightened deviant sex outside of marriage. So I want to give a citation here, a description here, uh, made by uh, W. Carlton Wood from his work, The Religion of Canaan. Okay, and here's what Here's what he says in describing these practices. Quote, Under whatever name this goddess was worshipped, as for example, Ishtar, Astarte, Aphrodite, Venus, Anaitis, Ma, Rhea, or Sibyl, the same distinguishing rites gave the cult a primitive Semitic stamp. At Babylon, it was an established religious requirement for every woman, regardless of social position, to sacrifice her chastity once in her life, to Ishtar at her temple, and to dedicate the hire thus earned by consecrated harlotry to the service of the temple. A well-established custom at Hierapolis required every woman to sell her chastity to a stranger at the temple of Ashtarte, or Ishtar. A similar custom prevailed at Byblos, where on a certain feast day of the annual mourning for Adonis, all women had either to sacrifice their hair or to give the hire of a harlot as an offering to the goddess. Similar practices were in vogue in Cyprus and in Lydia. So there, again, we see what was involved in this kind of worship. There was a, a set month of mourning, and, and part of that mourning required the cutting of hair or the selling oneself as a prostitute to a stranger and the money to be given to the temple. Now, these ritual sex practices involve both male and female prostitutes. And again, I mentioned before that that Inanna or, or Asherah is androgynous, and the creatures that rescued her were not gendered, right? Now, there's several different words used in uh, the Old Testament to describe these different cult practices. Uh, we have the Asinu. Those were men who were castrated, and this was meant to demonstrate Inanna's power to turn a man into a woman. So they dressed as women, uh, they cut off their body parts, and they engaged in intercourse with men. That would be anal intercourse with men. And it was believed that doing this would bring good luck or good fortune to their sexual partners. And they are described as dogs in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 through 18, which is why men who were eunuchs and men who were engaged in sexual cult practices were not allowed to be associated with the worship of Yahweh. Uh, so in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17 says this, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So again, there are there is to be no prostitution like the worship of Asherah or Tammuz, None of that is to be associated with the worship of the God of Israel. Then we have other words uh, of cult functionaries. Uh, the Kugaru uh, could be either male or female. Uh, they typically uh, carried weapons, and it seems more likely that they were females that took on a warrior-like appearance, like the Valkyrie or the Amazonian women, or it could be men who cut their parts off, become eunuchs, and then they dress as women and carry weapons. So again, they're meant to symbolize the aggressive warrior image 
of Inanna. Uh, then you have a group called the Kadesh. Uh, they're either male or female prostitutes. They're not necessarily eunuchs. The men who are part of this are not necessarily eunuchs. There seems to be a reference to this with the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2.22, where these serving women would have sex with the with the sons of Eli, who were the priests, and uh, it's possible that they were in that role of Kadesh, female prostitutes. And then you have another group called the Zona, and they are a select group of female prostitutes. Um, they had a special mark on their heads. They were typically found by the waysides. They would make, they would sing, and they would make noise um, to attract attention to themselves. And they were sometimes married and had children. They could be very well off. They, they wore costly garments and jewelry and cosmetics, but they were a specific uh, group of female prostitutes. And it seems like uh, uh, Hosea married uh, one of them. Gomer would have been one of the Zona that he uh, was ordered to marry by, by the Lord. All right, we're going to pause there because there's still so much more to talk about, uh, but I don't want to go much longer than I already have. Uh, so will there be a part two to uh, astral worship next time? But I do want to say this. I want to say that what we see here, um, these practices, these themes, the themes of unrestrained sexuality outside of marriage, coupled with extreme anger, violence, and even depression and mourning. Okay? And I think there's a lot of ways in which this kind of mentality, these ideas, these demonic practices are becoming present and are demonstrating their existence uh, here in our culture today. So there's a lot more we're going to get to next time. Um, more descriptions of, of certain practices, such as parades, uh, things like that. So we'll get to that next time. But if you have any questions or comments or other topics you want me to address, uh, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can search for Governed by God or Eric Leupold. You can find me there, message me. Uh, please share this show with a friend, coworker, um, fellow church member, trying to get this information out there as much as possible because I think it's quite important and very relevant. So anyways, thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, take care and peace.